I, I think like you, Giles, have found it really upsetting to see people I thought I respected, people I thought were educated, serious people, trying to violate the biggest democratic mandate ever given for anything in this country. Hello and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where I talk to interesting and well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and work out what it is uh, they're on about. And with me today is the sort of right-winger that uh, left-wingers tell their kids about to scare them. (laughs) It's Simon Heffer. Simon, welcome. Charles, thank you very much. (laughs) Simon, I remember we met first at a dinner and I think I was put next to you as a sort of joke because I thought that we would um, not see eye to eye about anything at all and we got them very well. We agreed about almost everything. It was, I think it was before the referendum. Oh, don't say that. You'll get me in trouble. I think it was before the referendum, wasn't it? Oh, yes. And we, I think we recognised in each other fellow, um, what used to be called Eurosceptics. Yes, that's right. I prefer to call them realists. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Very nice, very nice to see you. So what we do is, the first thing we do is we try and work out where you're coming from by just just sort of rewinding and talking about where you came from, where you grew up, maybe something about your mum and dad and the house in which you were, you were born. You're, you're not only archetypal Essex man, but you apparently even invented the phrase I did Essex in, man. I did invent the phrase. Uh, I wrote an <coughs> article in the Sunday Telegraph in 1990 um, at the start of the Conservative Party conference. It was the Sunday before it opened. Uh, about this um, person who's who, unlike me, whose roots were in the East End and had moved out to Essex in the 1960s, 70s, 80s and had, uh, through very hard work, almost inevitably hard work and enterprise, had got on in life and was moving up the, moving up the ladder, getting bigger and bigger houses, getting a pony for his daughter to ride at weekends, that sort of thing. And I wrote about him. It was It was meant to be an affectionate portrait. I certainly didn't think I was being rude about him. I mean, I was pointing out some of the realities about him. He wasn't inevitably highly educated or sophisticated, but he was a hard worker and he wasn't relying on the state to look after him or his family, and I rather admired that. Um, but it's whenever I read about it, and I read something the other day about it in a new book I've just reviewed on Essex, um, I'm, I'm tarred with the brush of having been incredibly unkind and rude, and I, I don't think I was. I guess I guess it's got associated with that word that I really don't like at all, which is chav, which is yes. that sort of like. Yes, um, it's 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 horrible. I mean, I've got a, um, I've got a great deal of sympathy for him, not just because I think he sets a good example in society. I think anybody who works hard and brings up their children, and looks after their families, I think they are people to be admired. Um, but uh, I think that there's a group of people, particularly along the Thames Estuary on both sides. I think the word chav originated in Chatham, and they are old white working class people, or in many cases young white working class people, who have not really had a fair crack of the whip. And the people who claim to represent them, which I think is usually the Labour Party, has not represented them particularly well, and the Conservative Party hasn't gone near them. And uh, I think that we neglect sections of our society at the peril of the political class. I think that an ideal government is one that looks to everybody and tries to see that everybody has a chance and that everybody is looked after. And I think there's a group there that wasn't. We'll come to we'll come to this politics in, in a sure. moment. You describe this particular Essex man sitting in front of me. Where did you come from? Well, I was born in the workhouse. Um, I only discovered that when I was 33 because <coughs> I, I went to uh, see my wife after she'd given birth to our first son. And he was born in the same building in Chelmsford that I was born in, uh, which was a maternity hospital and had been since the 1930s. But um, over the door, as he went in, it said Chelmsford Parish Workhouse, 1906. So I and both my sons uh, were born in the workhouse, and we're very proud of it. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere on the Essex Marshes uh, in the old village of Woodham Ferrers, which um, about 20 years later became a new town uh, in a nice little house that my father bought um, when he was about to retire. He was a career civil servant. And uh, so was my mother. She worked for him. That's how they met. Um, My father was nearly 30 years older than my mother. His first wife had died very suddenly of liver cancer uh, when she was 53. And my father was, I think, 57. And uh, my mother and he got together and uh, married when he was 60 and she was 31. 
and I turned up two years later, and I have a younger brother who turned up four years later. Wow, so he was an elderly dad. Yes, although uh, if you were to see my father, you would not think that he was in his 60s when he was in his 60s. He was very well preserved and uh, and pretty fit, although regrettably, like all his generation, um, he took up smoking. He took up smoking in the Great War in which he fought uh, and um, died of lung cancer when I was nearly 11, which was uh, a bit of a bore. But as my mother said at the time, uh, and this is something that stuck with me all my life, she said, we, we, we have alternatives now. We can go to pieces or we can get on with it and we're going to get on with it. And uh, I think one reason why I am a, a rabid feminist, and I really am a rabid feminist, is that I think a lot of men at that stage would have gone to pieces. I know that if anything had happened to my wife when my children were the same age as me and my brother, and I'd had to do it on my own, I'm not entirely sure I'd have kept it together, but my mother did and did a fabulous job. And it makes you realise that... Women are every bit as capable psychologically as men are, and it's balls to think otherwise. What are the values that were that were floating around in your home? My parents never really squabbled about politics and never talked about it, and they had a similar divide about religion. My father had grown up in an Anglican family in Cambridgeshire and uh, went to church every Sunday, as he repeatedly told me, um, but after the Great War decided that there obviously wasn't a God and my mother was uh, a devout high church Anglican and went to church every Sunday. And I learned later in life that when I turned up, uh, they had a conversation about what was to be done about any religious upbringing that I might have, bearing in mind that I would, and I think it's still true today, have been taught something about religion at school when I got there. And it was agreed that if I expressed an interest in religion, it was not to be suppressed. So I remember going to my little village primary school, which was a tiny school on the Essex Marshes with about 60 or 70 children in it, in 1965 when I started school. And on the first Monday, almost every other child in my class was in there buzzing with stories of very jolly time and a tea party they'd had at Sunday school the previous day. And I went home and I said, what's Sunday school? And I said, And... um, (laughs) So I started to go to Sunday school. There was a very lovely girl who was about 14 who lived in a cottage near us, and she was a Sunday school teacher, and she would pick me up at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoons and walk with me into the village, because we lived just outside the village, uh, walk with me into the village to the uh, Sunday school, and then bring me home again afterwards. And I did this for, I suppose it must have been about eight or nine months, because I remember we were doing all the stuff about um, uh, miracles and water into wine and you know, walking on water and stuff like that, stuff that you do routinely, Giles. And um, I, I just was a bit sceptical. Even at the age of almost six, I was like, oh, hang on, this doesn't happen. <laughs> and I went home, and I suppose this is what fate hinges on. Had I encountered my mother, first of all, things could have been very different, but my mother was out. And I could still see my father sitting in a deck chair reading the Sunday Telegraph under some uh, green gauge trees that were in blossom. So it must be the end of April, beginning of May. And it was a beautiful day. And I went up to him and I said, you know, we've been taught all this at Sunday school. Do you think it happened? And he looked at me and he said, well, no, I don't. And I then said to him, "Um, but a lot of people do believe it. And he said, well, that's just the point, isn't it? You either believe this or you don't. And I'm afraid I don't. And I never went to Sunday school again. Um, So having said that, although I have never been able to bring myself to believe in God. My mother's values obviously seeped through. I mean, I I, I don't routinely break any of the Ten Commandments as far as I'm aware. I've always taken the view that to live in in a Christian way, and particularly to treat other people as you would wish to be treated yourself, is not a bad thing to do. And it's, I, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a bad... It's, 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 it's a pretty bad philosophy if you're a masochist, I've always Yes, it probably is. I'm not a masochist. <laughs> um, if you're a self-harmer, then treating other people yes. the way you'd like to be treated yourself, I always thought it was a poor philosophy. But I think the idea that you don't go around murdering people, stealing yes. from them, nicking their wives, yes. nicking yes. their goats, that sort of thing... It's pretty minimal, min- minimal yes. requirement. I think that's a pretty good way. So those are my basic values. And, um, I mean, my father lived by that creed. My father was an utterly decent man, and... Uh, so was my mother, uh, intensely decent. So, school in Chelmsford? Yes, I went to Chelmsford Grammar School. Uh, and I suppose the, th- the, the two things that have formed me more 
than anything apart from my parents. Uh, I went to a brilliant school and I was really, really lucky to go there. Um, a very old grammar school, one of the, still one of the best grammar schools in the country. And I really fervently believe in grammar school education, not least because um, there was no writing off in Essex of people at the age of 11. We had boys who came in at 13 and boys who came in at 16 from initially secondary moderns, then comprehensives. And so, uh, and boys were thrown out if they didn't, you know, we were told when we went there, you're, you, you have a great privilege to come to this school and if you work hard, the world is your oyster. And, you know, of the... I think there were 90 boys who left when I did and 31 of us got to Oxbridge. And that was a better proportion in the year that we left than Winchester or Eton. And you went to... Where, where did you go? I went to Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. To do? To read English, right, right. first of all. And I later did a PhD in history. And what are your politics at this time? My politics are what they've always been, actually. I, am, I have always been a Gladstonian liberal. Now, you can call that right-wing if you want. What it means is uh, I believe in sound money, fundamentally. I believe in the rule of law. Uh, I've got a very Victorian idea of a distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor. I believe in a compassionate society with compassion directed at those who need it most. Uh, I do not mind paying taxes for a welfare state, provided it's run properly. There's a rumour that you used to be a leftier for a while. Well, the, the, I, I tell you what the rumour is based on. Uh, I was so appalled in 1974 when I was 13 and a half years old in Ted Heath calling... Because I was very politically precocious. I was very interested in politics. I was so appalled at Ted Heath calling the election in 1974 over who governs because it's pretty bloody obvious that he should be doing the governing, that uh, I campaigned for Frances Morell, who was the Chelmsford Labour Party candidate, Big Lil, as she subsequently became known, and I, I canvassed for her in Chelmsford. I used to go after school to the Chelmsford Labour Party and be given leaflets and walk up and down the streets distributing them, and I did that for that election campaign. That was my one flirtation with, with leftism. But you, you've always... You've always... You, you, you've always said reasonably nice things about some proper hard lefties like Tony Benn and so forth. Oh, I, I like Tony Benn enormously. I've never chosen my friends according to their politics any more than you would choose your friends according to their sexuality or their religion. If you've got things... If, if someone is interesting to you for whatever reason uh, and you, or, you, know, you like them... It's nothing to do with their politics or their... I mean, OK, if they were a Nazi or a, a sort of machine-gun-wielding Trotskyist, then probably you wouldn't want to be friends with them. But, um, you know, most people who have a reasonable view of constitutional politics... I mean, I've got lots of friends who are, who are lefties and lots of friends who are on the right. I mean, I'm struggling since poor old Charlie Kennedy died. He was a very good friend of mine. To think of anyone of the Liberal Democrats that I think I, could, <laughs> that I, I would call a friend. But that's, you know, I'm sure that there's one out there somewhere. And no, I've never, I've never chosen my friends by any criteria. And I think people who say, oh, I can't be friends with him because he's a Muslim or he's a Jew or he's a black or he's a communist or whatever. Never I mean, kissed a Tory. Yes, never kissed a Tory. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, you take... I, don't, I, I, I do not approve of prejudice. You take people as you find them. And in terms of just the last question on the, on the hard left, you have some distant relationship to Eric Heffer, is that right? Not as distant as that. He's my second, he was my second cousin. Uh, Eric's... <laughs> One of my great heroes. Great Eurosceptic, of course. I, I loved Eric. Uh, uh, Eric, well, I'll tell you a very strange story. My father, I think, always voted Labour. I remember seeing Eric's name in the paper, in the Telegraph Parliamentary Reports, when I was about seven years old. And Eric, of course, even then had a reputation of being very, very left-wing indeed. Sort of lefty that my father would not have approved of. My father was very much sort of gates yeah, sort of lefty. And uh, I saw the name Mr Heffer, and it's such an unusual name. I said to my father, is she related to us? And my father said, no, he bloody well isn't. <laughs> and that was that. And that was the end of that conversation. And so fast forward 20 years, it's the late 1980s, and I'm on the terrace of the House of Commons at a drinks party. And Eric walks up to me and he says, you're Simon Heffer. And I said, you're Eric Heffer. And we shake hands. And he said, we're related. And I said, are we? He said, yes, we are. He said, you're my second cousin. Wow. And uh, he said, I've got the family tree somewhere. He never showed me the family tree. I've done the researches. He was definitely my second cousin. And I, I saw a lot of Eric in the last three or four years of his life because he was that were, those were the last three or four years of his life. 
and Doris, his wife, who was who was charming. And um, Eric was a truly wonderful man. I mean, he had bonkers politics, in my view, on some questions. But he was totally straight and a man of complete integrity. And if you can hear a distant whirring, it's him spinning in his grave at the idea of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister. <laughs> um, but I remember uh, I went up to see Eric and Doris in Liverpool in about 1990, and he drove me around the bits of Liverpool where those nasty... 1960s tar blocks had been demolished and the Militant Tendency Council had built really nice sort of modern Coronation Street style back-to-back houses. And I said, I said, gosh, these are rather good, aren't they? And he said, yeah, they are. He said, nothing's too good for the workers. He said, he said, the problem is with these, he says, they're so bloody good, people are now barring them under the Thatcher legislation. <laughs> said, that wasn't the plan at all. <laughs> we, we agreed to differ on that. So I'm very, I'm very proud to claim kinship with Eric, and uh, I wish I'd known him longer and better. Great man. And he part was... of that tradition of left-wing Euroscepticism. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and also deeply religious, deeply Christian. He was, uh, he was high, he was high church, wasn't yeah, he? He was high yeah. church, Anglo-Catholic. Yeah. Uh, now listen, let's cut to the chase and talk about. Uh, well, let's talk about your journalism career. So that's this is this takes off. Does this take off after Cambridge? Yes, I was going to be a stockbroker. Um, for reasons I won't bore you with. And I had a girlfriend at the time who talked me out of it. And she said, you don't realise how bored you're going to be. And she said, you are a creative person. I don't know why she thought that, because um, I hadn't done any undergraduate journalism at all. I mean, now I used to hire people for the Daily Telegraph's um, graduate trainee scheme. I wouldn't look at anybody who hadn't done three years of solid undergraduate journalism. So... um, I remember um, thinking about this over the summer and I resigned from my job as a stockbroker before I took it up, which was a stupid thing to do because this was 1982 and there were three million people unemployed. And my mother threw her toys out of the pram and, bless her, said, no son of mine is signing on the dole. I will keep you until you get a job. You better get on with it, though. And I applied for 82 jobs (laughs) in journalism in those days, you will remember, they used to advertise in The Guardian. I'd buy The Guardian every Monday. It was before the internet was invented. And I'd write off and send my CV off. And there were, t- there were two sorts of answer. There was The nice one said, please bugger off, and the others just said, bugger off. So um, I got nowhere. And then I applied for a job on one of the most boring magazines in the world, which was the uh, house magazine of a learned institute that represented... National Health Service Laboratory Technicians. And every month they brought out a really beefy magazine that was full of learned papers written by these people and news about the profession. And uh, and you couldn't stay awake beyond about two pages of it. But they wanted a sub-editor. And I I got an interview, which was amazing. It was just before Christmas and I was about to start panicking. And uh, I went to uh, their offices and um, was shown in. And there was a little chap, uh, now I'm sadly long dead, a very nice old boy, um, sitting behind uh, a desk, looking a bit like the late Robin Cook. Sort of little chap with a bit, looked like he needed a toadstool on a fishing rod and an ornamental <laughs> pond, you know? And uh, he told me that the only reason I'd been sent for for an interview was that in, I think, 1952, when he had been a junior laboratory technician himself, He had gone to a summer school at Cambridge and had stayed at my college. And he said what a very nice college it was and how very kind all the staff were to him there. And he'd been very overwhelmed with it. He said, how was the old place? And so I told him. (laughs) Anyway, so it was made clear to me that I was there under completely false pretenses. And um, he gave me a piece of paper that had about 350 words of type on it. And he said, there are 20 mistakes in here. Uh, there are spelling mistakes, there are grammatical errors, there are words used wrongly and punctuation mistakes. You have to find all 20 or else we don't go on to the second phase. And he gave me a quarter of an hour, put me in another room. I came back five minutes later and I'd found 24 mistakes. Oh, very good. And uh, I showed him what the other four were. He didn't know about some of these himself. And he said, well, I'd better give you a job, didn't I? So I got a job and I worked... Um, with two really nice women um, who I still think of all the time. Um, one was uh, a Jehovah's Witness. I'd never met a Jehovah's Witness before. And, uh, I mean, she would spend all her weekends going around North London trying to convert people. 
but uh, she was really charming and a really good journalist. Uh, and never forced it down our throats at all, never tried to bring it into the office. And um, the other one was a slightly slightly bonkers Icelandic woman, but very nice. And um, we, uh, I worked with them and learned probably everything I need to learn about journalism in wow. 18 months from them. Wow. They were both really good How do you, how do you learn your journalists. sort of like... How do you learn your particular style on so boring a journal? Well, I didn't... What I didn't learn then was... Um, anything about writing style, I learned how a really good article is put together. I see. Uh, and I think a lot of the... I'm not saying I'm a great writer, but I think a lot of the best writers are people who've started off as sub-editors because they know that they have, they have to be disciplined in what they write. And that's what I learned there. And then I went on to start writing. Um, I got a job on a more mainstream medical paper. And um, one day... Uh, I suppose it would have been early 1985, I was the features editor. And one of my columnists, who was a doctor somewhere in the outer regions of Scotland, uh, rang me up and said, I know I meant to file in an hour's time, but I've just got an emergency. I've got a woman giving birth uh, on the other side of the island or something, and I'm not going to be able to do it. And uh, so I had a creative white space, and I went and saw the editor. He said, well, write something. So this was, yeah, early 1985. So I wrote something saying that uh, the National Health Service had been invented in 1946 and started in 1948, and it was very necessary at the time. Uh, and I said, now, are we now at the stage where we've become a much more affluent society, where perhaps we could encourage people who can afford to do so to provide their own health care? Yeah, you dropped a bomb. Uh, and have health care um, for everybody else guaranteed by the taxpayer. So no one goes ill, no one dies, but it's just making those who can afford to look after themselves look after themselves. Uh, and this appeared, and it caused a bit of a storm, and there was nothing wrong with that, so it was good to get people to read it. But one of the people who was, well, didn't read the article, but it was drawn to his attention by uh, the health editor of his paper was Peter Stothart, who became editor of The Times and was then op-ed page editor of The Times. And he recruited me to go and write leaders for The Times on welfare and I was only 24 um, and that was an astonishing piece of luck uh, and um, so then Wapping happened and I didn't go to Wapping not for ideological reasons but they I was on a freelance contract and they cancelled all contracts and he took staff to Wapping so I didn't go and I stopped writing for them and I was um, uh, I was slightly at a loose end and I was sent to see by a mutual friend uh, T.E. Utley who was then deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph and an immensely distinguished journalist, blind since the age of seven, but got a double first in history from Cambridge and always had really pretty girls sitting around him reading to him, which I suppose is one of the consolations. Uh, if you have to have one of being blind, he didn't believe in guide dogs. And I went to see him in a pub in Fleet Street in early 1986 to ask him if he could get me a job. And I knew nothing about him personally other than that he was blind and that he was a very great journalist. And we had a very polite talk for about 15 minutes. And he said, well, dear boy, I've got lots of young men on my books. And, um, uh, uh, you know, if anything comes up, I'll let you know. At which point Mrs Utley comes in and uh, she's going to drive him home. And I shake her hand and she says to me, is that a corpus tie you're wearing? I think, no. I think I only had two ties um, and they were both university ties. And I said, well, it is. How do you recognise it? And she said, well, that's Peter's College, and both of our sons went there. And I said, really? And he said, dear boy. You got both of your breaks in journalism on the old boy network. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, 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 said, he said, dear boy, now I see you're wearing that tie, of course we'll find a job for you. No. And I started The Telegraph about a month later. Oh, my word. Um, that's slightly shocking. Well, it's slightly shocking, but if I had been no bloody good, I know I'd have been fired. Right. OK. So I, I, I believe in nepotism. Uh, but I also believe in saying to the uh, the uh, beneficiary that if you bugger it up, that's it. You're you're out. And um, I hope I didn't. I mean, in fact, I'm still writing for them. The job of a journalist is to chuck bricks through people's windows. I yes, you said that, haven't you? Yes, I have. Tell I... me about tell me about the bricks you chuck. Well. Um, I suppose the first serious brick chucking I did was in John, under John Major's government. Um, I thought Major 
behaved in a pretty pusillanimous way as Prime Minister. I didn't like the way he went on his knees to the European Union, particularly to Helmut Kohl. Uh, and I felt that his part in taking us into the ERM, which I know Mrs Thatcher signed off, but she was out six weeks after it happened, the way he kept us in there and inflicted real economic damage on this country with massively high exchange rates through 1991 and 1992. Um, I felt he behaved extraordinarily badly, and I was then writing for The Spectator. I was deputy editor of The Spectator, and um, they're also their political columnist. And I threw bricks at him more or less every week, and he used to telephone Conrad Black and ask him to sack me, and Conrad would ring me up and say, oh, Well Simon, done. I've just had the Prime Minister I wanting to sack you. Remind me to review your salary. And um, <laughs> so... Why do people not realise that when you phone up an editor to ask them to sack someone, that's the best thing that can happen to you? I know. Why, I, do, why do politicians not know that? I, I, I'm pretty sure it works sometimes. I'm pretty sure it works. Uh, but you know, any editor worth his salt will say, I'm not having the Prime Minister of the day tell me who I can't, can and can't employ as a columnist. So you're a Gladstonian liberal uh, who also likes, chucks bricks quite a lot of Tory leaders. Yeah. Boris. Give me Boris. <sighs> it's almost where one's sense of humour is exhausted, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've got an old-fashioned view that anybody who purports to want to run this country should be somebody who has some probity. And I just don't see that he's got any. And I'm not talking about his private life. I mean, I'm not censorious about what people do in their private life, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it ends at the bedroom door, as the phrase goes. Uh, and if they do things that um, uh, violate their marriage vows, they've got to reconcile that with their conscience, and possibly with their partner. Um, but... Just the way that he has told lies and made statements that are obviously untrue throughout his political career and indeed his professional career, you know, right from lying to Conrad Black when Conrad made him editor of The Spectator, uh, against the advice of many of us, I was consulted and I advised very strongly against it, and he said to Conrad, I will not fight a parliamentary seat, and he stood for one within months. Uh, he stood for the uh, candidacy at Henley and got it. Um, and then, you know, more recently, they're lying down in front of a bulldozer if they built another runway at Heathrow. And he spent, what was it, £21,000 of taxpayers' money on an entirely pointless visit to Afghanistan to be out of the country when a vote took place in which he would have to have resigned uh, from the government in order to vote against. So... He's a man of bluster, rhetoric, bullshit, basically. Uh, and I think entirely untrustworthy. And you know, as we're talking, um, there's all sorts of people leaving the sinking ship. I mean, not rats, actually, but people who just can't bear the thought of being in a Tory party that he leads. And do, you think he'll, do, you think he'll, do you think there's any route through to us leaving the European Union through him? Only indirectly, in that I think that uh, if he doesn't compromise and doesn't ask for an extension, which he will have to do if he wants to stay as Prime Minister, I think, because um, there's no commission to negotiate with until the 1st of November. They don't, they're, not, they're not in existence. He can have a chat with his other heads of government at their summit in October. But uh, if he's still Prime Minister... Um, but what credibility, what credibility does he have left if on the uh, you know, 18th, 19th of October he asks for another couple of months? And they won't necessarily grant it. They think we are now only in the European Union in order to foul it up. You know, there's 30 Brexit Party MPs or so out there every day now, you know, Anne Widdicombe, Nigel Farage and the rest, Richard Tice and all that lot, um, who are making a mockery of the European Parliament, and deliberately so. And uh, the person who will ensure us leaving is probably Emmanuel Macron, who will say, 
There's no more extension. What's the point? Why should we give these people an extension in order to make our lives even more difficult? I mean, Macron has a plan that he wants to create a federal Europe. And so far, he has been obstructed by two things in that plan. One is Britain, and the other is the very cautious Angela Merkel. Well, Angela Merkel's not going to be around for much longer. And Macron is planning, I think, to take over as the emperor of Europe, you know, to succeed her as the Kaiserin. And um, he doesn't want us in the way. So you're you, you're long long term Eurosceptic, um, but uh, even even if you're a Eurosceptic, even if this does uh, damage us economically, you see, I'm, I've never been so sure it will. To me, it's always been like the Millennium Bug. But yes, if it caused economic damage, I think that democracy is more important than that. To be honest with you, uh, I mean I profoundly believe in democracy. I profoundly believe in everybody having a say in how this country is run. And uh, I really don't like it um, when people with university degrees um, get up and say, well, these are uneducated people who know what they're doing. I think it's not just bloody patronising, it's bloody insulting. And you you do not need a doctorate in order to know how to cast your vote. you need common sense, and you need to know what your um, what your own priorities are in life. And this goes back to the point I was making earlier about I think this large group of white working class people in this country who just felt that successive governments had ignored them and treated them as if they were just scum. And uh, they've they've got their own back, and good for them is all I would say. I mean. Uh- as you know, I share with you your, your Euroscepticism, but I, I can't go down the Farage route at all. I, 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 well, what do you call the Farage route? I, I that a, depends what how I you have a, I have it. a block with the Brexit Party. Are you a Brexit Party fan? Um, I voted for them in the elections in May, and if there is a general election and they stand in it, I will vote for them then, on the, because I couldn't bring myself to vote for the Conservative or the Labour Party. Wow. That's extraordinary to hear that coming from Simon Heffer. Well, what the Brexit Party believe in is what I believe in, which is the delivering on the democratic vote that took place three years ago. And I, I think like you, Giles, have found it really upsetting to see people I thought I respected, people I thought were educated, serious people trying to violate the biggest democratic mandate ever given for anything in this country. And if we go down that road, we're in very dangerous territory. I do not want to live in a country where one day we might have a general election that puts in a government and that another group of people say, oh, I don't like that government very much. We'll throw it out. I mean, that's how we end up like Venezuela. I didn't really want to end up like Venezuela, to be honest with you. OK, so last name I'm going to chuck at you, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I've never met Corbyn. Uh I have uh, watched him over the 35 years or so that he's been an MP. He's done a number of things that I've found pretty distasteful. I thought, uh, you know, I remember at the time when he took the IRA people, or Sinn Féin people, into Parliament just after the Brighton bomb. I thought that was pretty nauseating. And I don't like the way that he seems to find the enemies of this country always um, morally superior to people in this country. So that annoyed me. Um, and I've been annoyed by his, I think, idiotic economic views. I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to be Venezuela. And even if you see where Hugo Chavez's uh, approach to economics got Venezuela, no one in his right mind would want to say that's a good thing and do it here. But what's really appalled me in the last few years, I mean, you know, we're of a generation that grew up watching newsreels of Auschwitz and just. A, 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 an almost incomputable horror that went on in a country that had uh, organised anti-Semitism. And, you know, I think we all thought, well, that's never going to happen again because those newsreels are there and those pictures are there. And, you know, in our lifetime, there have been people who came through the concentration camps and miraculously survived them. And so when I see people who have Corbyn's imprimatur on them and are supported by him, getting up and saying really appalling things about Jewish people. And when I see that, um, that, that uh, Luciana Berger, who was a Labour MP uh, and who was pregnant at the time, requiring a bodyguard at the Labour Party conference last year because bonkers anti-Semites were threatening her, uh, I just don't think that that is a civilised political party. And I just don't see how he can 
get away with soft peddling on this question in the way that he has for the last couple of years. And I think it will be his undoing. I think that there are so many Labour MPs now who are and Labour peers who are revolted by his tolerance of the intolerant um, that he will never be Prime Minister. I think that you know, if, if the, the, the Johnson government were to fall, there'd be much more chance of there being a government of national unity. I, um, I'm listening to you here, and I'm, there's so much of what you say um, that I agree with. So I'm thinking to myself, OK, this is slightly scaring me. That, <laughs> that we're... So I'm trying to think to myself, OK, where is the, where is the, the thing that I, of, of what you've said in the last 40 minutes that I'm, like, most, you know, bothers me the most? Yeah. And I think probably when you said, I think there's a strong distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor, I think that's probably the bit where pastorally as a priest and as a, uh, and as a lefty, that's the bit where I'm, I'm most bothered. How do, how, do you, how do you make that distinction? I think that uh, at a time when, certainly in the town where I live, there is 1.5% unemployment at the moment, and I see uh, young men, and they're mainly men, um, lying in shop doorways in the morning when I go to get the train to London. Um, because, uh, and the, the police say this locally, they are usually from London, and they've come out to an affluent home county's town, to find a begging pitch. And um, one stopped me one morning last week, and he was about 25, and he called me Sir. He said, Sir, I had a suit on, that's probably why. <laughs> and he said, can you give me some change? And I said, why didn't you get a job? He looked blankly at me. I said, you're a fit young man, get a job. I said, there's no unemployment in this town, get a job. Why should I give you money? I work. Why should I work for you? Get a job. Now, I'm very happy to give money to orphans, to people who are so badly disabled they can't work, to the elderly who are too infirm and cracked up to work, to widows who've had shocking misfortunes, to women who've been deserted by the fathers of their children and who won't look after them and who are trying to get their lives together. I think a sensible government has a, a social security system that makes these discretionary judgments. I'm not happy to give money to people who can't be bothered to work. I'm sorry. Um, if we had three and a half million unemployed, I would think differently. Um, and I want everything possible done to regenerate the economy and to provide trading schemes to ensure people can, can, get, can get work. But in this day and age, there's an awful lot of jo so, unskilled jobs so, so around. For, so, so at the risk of puncturing the affability that we have yes. between us, yeah. which, but this is important stuff, as, yeah, you, yeah. as you write this. Um, the, the, one, the one thing that, that you're sometimes remembered for is, is, the, is the bit of journalism that you did about Liverpool and about... Um, uh, about after Hillsborough, and you spoke of the sort of victim culture there, yeah. there in Liverpool and so forth. I don't know if you regret that or you regret where you drew the line uh, on well, issues. What, of... what I would say on a matter of record is that what appeared was not entirely what I wrote. It was a leading article, uh, and somebody called Boris Johnson rang me up at seven o'clock on a Tuesday evening, having realised he hadn't got a leader for the Spectator, and we talked about a number of issues that had been um, kicked around. And there was a man who'd been murdered in Iraq. And, you know, I'm very sorry about that. Um, but Liverpool had decided to have a two-minute silence for him. And the point I made to Boris was, isn't that going a bit far? I mean, this man's had a misfortune, a very serious misfortune, as of his family. But to have the same uh, gesture of respect that you afforded the entire dead of two world wars, I thought was going a little bit far. And uh, I felt that there, I think in Liverpool after Hillsborough, and I'm, you know, I'm not diminishing what a bloody awful thing Hillsborough was, don't get me wrong, but I think that you know, it, it, there almost became a, a habit or, a, or a, a fetish in that community to, um, to, to grieve rather than just get on with it. And I'm sorry, I am a historian, and Liverpool was very badly bombed in the Blitz, in 1941-42, and a lot of people were killed. Thousands of people, I think, were killed in Liverpool in the Blitz. And they just got on with it. And, uh, you know, 
in this city where we are now in London, tens of thousands of people were killed in the Blitz. And we just got on with it and got up and went to work the next morning. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to belittle grief. I'm just saying that, you know, people grieve privately and deal with it and get on. If we didn't, then the whole of society goes to pieces. So I, I do regret that I wrote it in a hurry. I regret the fact that Boris didn't edit The Spectator sufficiently in a sufficiently well-organised way that he had not got a leading article and had to ring round to get someone to write one. I mean, I wrote that in half an hour before going out to a dinner party, which is why I was, I was in my club in London about to go out and meet some people for dinner. Um, and uh, you know, it was rewritten at his end. And that's why, quite correctly, he took responsibility for it. But I think you know, I had the idea. It was my idea. He agreed that we should do that. And, um, you know, I'm enormously sorry for Mr Bigley, who was the, the murder victim, and for his family. Uh, but we've all had, in one degree or another, personal tragedies in our lives. And I think we all know that you grieve and you move on. And that was all I was saying about Liverpool. It seemed, for a moment, I'm sure it's not true today, but it seemed that there was a, there was a phase in its history um, in, you know, from the late 1980s until about 10 years ago where it just wanted to, it wanted to draw attention to its own sufferings. And I think that was, that was not a good idea. Um, set what you've just said in the context, let's just move away from that. You're a historian, as you just said, and you've got a new, you've got a new book coming out, that the, which is a part of a, uh, I was going to say trilogy, but I don't know what the fourth thing is for a trilogy. It's a tetralogy. A tetralogy, I've tetralogy. learned a word. <laughs> That's Greek for you. Of, uh, I thought you had to do the Greek New Testament when you were trying I'm, to train no, to be a priest. Bad. My mind's more, um, Hebrew's more mine than, than the Greek bit. But um, the the um, the sweep of this grand project that you're you're involved with, you've just got a you've got a book coming out which is about the Great War. Yes, I've. Uh, I decided to write a history of England. Uh, originally, it was just going to be Queen Victoria's reign, but it just got bigger and bigger. Uh, and in the end, it's going to cover 101 years from 1838 to 1939. 1939 is an obvious place to end because the worst war in the history of the world breaks out. But I started in 1838 because it was three quite significant events that year. It was the year that the Anti-Corn Law League was founded. It was the year that the Chartist movement was founded. And it was the year of Queen Victoria's coronation. So uh, there's a there's a big societal change, and um, Britain is becoming a really fractious and difficult country in 1838, because of the price of food. And that's you know because the Corn Laws are there to uh, enrich a Tory aristocracy, and it's not least due to my friend Mr. Gladstone, who moves from the Tories to the Liberals in the 1850s, uh, that he persuades Robert Peel to repeal the Corn Laws and to have a free market and free trade in corn to drop the price so that poor people, well, not just poor people in this country can avoid um, starvation, but that we don't starve Ireland, which has a potato famine at the time, which is going pretty badly for them. Um, but this book, which is called Staring at God, um, is out on the 19th of September, and it is a social, political and cultural history of Britain during the Great War. And to go back to what we were just talking about, about grieving, uh, you know, it deals with something that I've never been able to comprehend, which is how when 19,240 men were killed in six hours on the Somme on the 1st of July 1916, we didn't have a revolution in this country. Because it was not covered up. Um, the press did not report it. But eventually, within 10 days, casualty lists, massive casualty lists, started appearing in national papers, in local papers, um, in towns like Belfast and Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Bradford, where they had PALS battalions or the Ulster Division in Belfast. Women would go into shops to do their shopping and they'd see other women who were all wearing black and they'd talk to each other and they'd realise that they'd all lost people. I mean, towns like Accrington in Lancashire, a whole generation of men was wiped out in three hours. And people started to besiege local newspaper offices on about the 8th or 9th of July to ask what the hell was going on. Lloyd George, who wasn't responsible for any of this, he wasn't Prime Minister, he'd only just become War Secretary after Kitchener's death. He'd been Munitions Minister before that. Famously said to um, the, uh, the man who became Cabinet Secretary, uh, Sir Maurice Hankey, if the public find out about this, we're in serious trouble. And it was only when 
by about the end of the month that they realised the full extent of the casualties. And shops all over Britain were reporting they were running out of mourning clothes. They couldn't get the crepe to put on ladies' hats and veils and dresses because obviously it was a society that took the rituals of mourning much more seriously than we do now. But we just got on with it. And it, it astonishes me that we just got on with it. And, I mean, now, if we lost 19,240 men in a year, there'd be a revolution, never mind in six or seven hours on one day in the, in the summer. And it's something that is, I think, literally incomprehensible. Um, you know, we had 58,000 casualties that day. And apart from the 19,000 who died of 39,000 wounded, and because they joined up in these um, neighbourhood battalions, you know, you've got whole towns. My great grandfather of... was in the Bradford Powers. Yeah. yeah, you've got well, well, sort of whole areas of Bradford. Men that never come back. Yeah. It's what um, it's what uh, I think it was Siegfried Sassoon in 1918 called the Unreturning Army uh, of these 880,000 British and Empire men who die. I mean, what's amazing, actually, when you consider the ridiculous conditions under which those poor buggers were fighting, you know, walking out into hails of machine gun fire, um, it's amazing as many came back as, as did. Uh, I think that I think 13% of men who went were killed, which means 87% came back. And interestingly, it was the officer class who suffered worst. 17% of the officer class... Um, didn't come back. Um, these are young subalterns who are put in charge of men and they're walking in the front with a pistol. And they're the first people to get blown to smithereens, unfortunately. But, um, I mean, if you go to any of the great public schools, I mean, at Eton, um, there's an entire cloister with, I think, uh, 1,300 names on it of boys who were killed. Old boys who were killed in the, in just in four years in the Great War. Um, you know, the size of a small town. Um, so... You know, there was real equality of suffering. I mean, everybody everybody got it. But, you know, it's. I'm, I'm going to write a fourth volume about the 20s and 30s, and I'm thinking about this already. I won't start it just yet for other reasons, but I'm, um, I'm looking at Neville Chamberlain. And, you know, I've, I've always been quite swift to judgment on Neville Chamberlain because we know how wicked Hitler was. But actually, if you'd been through the Great War, if you'd lived through that, and the Chamberlain was too old to fight in the First World War, but he had relatives who died in it, and you saw your friends being you know, wiped out, you would not be in a hurry to have another one. However wicked Hitler is, and however much Hitler deserves to be taken down a peg or two, you're going to think long and hard before committing yourself to do that. I also think, do you, I also think the role of the War Graves Commission is terribly important in Absolutely. terms of how we... In terms of the democracy of death and yeah, uh, yeah. and how everybody has the same sort of I quite agree. the same the same uh, the same stone agree. and all those moves to have you know, posh people to having fancy stones no, no that doesn't happen everybody right. has the same and no it's quite right and I'm very glad we don't know who the unknown warrior was he could have been a general because there were about fifty generals killed in the war uh, he could have been a general or he could have been the humblest Tommy and uh, I think that's right and um, I mean it's it's an intensely moving thing to think about. And I suppose in a way we are fortunate that it happened, unlike Waterloo, in the era not just of photography but of moving pictures. So it's more comprehensible to us than the early 19th century. You know, if, if we'd been having this conversation in 1919, talking about the Napoleonic Wars, uh, which were the same period, you know, same length of time earlier, we would, have, we would not have been able to comprehend the physical action of it in the way that we can because of newsreel and photography, but we still can't comprehend that vast and appalling number of dead. When, when you, um, you're a historian and a journalist, so when you look at society today, do you, do you feel at home, Simon? I feel at home when I'm in um, my little village in the countryside because I've lived there for this village for 30 years nearly, and um, I lived in the area all my life. Um, I, I suppose when I go to any town um, and I see conspicuous consumption going on, I feel slightly uneasy about it. Um, you know, you see cars get bigger and bigger and noisier. 
Isn't that part of the Essex man thing? They all became traders in the city. Yeah. They all coke and booze and money and all of that. Isn't yeah. that part of the Essex man thing? There's a lot of that. I mean, occasionally I've I've ventured um, by accident into Chelmsford on a Friday night and you see, particularly in the summer, there's orgies of boozing going on and not, not fighting or bad behaviour. Maybe that happens later, but there's a lot of people very, very scruffily dressed, drinking themselves insensible. Um, I mean, certainly the England I love is not the England I live in. And uh, I suspect that's true of many people. And I want to emphasise it's not because of uh, the, the greater diversity of England. I don't mind that at all. Um, I do. In fact, what I rather like about the fact that we particularly have uh, a big Asian population in this country now is that they, they bring with them values which I think were almost dying out among our people in terms of their regard for family, their belief in hard work. And if anything, those people are shoring up traditional British values in the way that the British aren't. But, I put that to Peter Hitchens, actually, in a yeah. previous one of these. Well, what did he say? He went, he went, I don't know. He was sort of like wobbled about it, I think. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 think it's, uh, I think it's an entirely fair point to make. And I do get very concerned at the... At, at, I sound like a sort of communist, but the, the decadence of our people. And again, you know, I, um, I, go, I, I, I go and meet my wife from church occasionally. I don't go to church because I don't believe. And she always goes reasonably smartly dressed, as you do on a Sunday. And I see people coming out of church looking like they've just come off the beach. And I think that's wrong. I mean, I, 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 who am I to say? You're telling this? me off now because that's that I would be. I'm... Well, no, because I bet when you when you're in the pulpit, you're, you've got your dog collar on and you look like a clergyman. Uh, I think that's fine. But I think if you go to a house of worship and going to a church is a, is a serious thing to do. It's a serious act. And you go there looking like you're about to you know, jump into a swimming pool. I think that's bad. I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I go on the occasions I go to church, which is to weddings and funerals, I put a suit and tie on. Yeah, I know. Call me old fashioned. You, you put a suit and tie on to have breakfast. <laughs> well, not quite, but I don't know. I just so here's the last thing. Here's the last thing. Oh, this is part... That's all I'm saying. I understand. So... When people say uh, of us Brexiters that actually it's a sort of nostalgic uh, desire for that feels like it's something more easily that you can pin on you than on me. Well, they can't pin that on me because my uh, my sense of um, a sort of golden English past has nothing to do with Brexit. It is a cultural thing. I mean, I think, where are the great composers today? Where are the great novelists? I mean, there are some, but not many as there were sort of 60 or 70 years ago. Where are, the, where are the great architects that we had in the Victorian period? Where have they gone? I mean, I think we are a culturally underachieving nation. Um, so that's nothing to do with Brexit. Look, as I said earlier, my reasons for supporting Brexit, and I supported it all my life, long before the term was invented, I mean, you'll go through my writings over 35 years in Fleet Street and you will not find a single good word I've ever written about the European Union, <laughs> is because I think it is a corrupt, anti-democratic ramp. And I want nothing to do with it. Uh, I am... I speak French reasonably well. I speak a bit of German, a bit of Italian. Uh, I have libraries full of books from those countries. I have cupboards full of classical music from those countries. I watch their films endlessly. I love European culture. I just don't want to be run by people that I can't vote for. It's as simple as that. That's why I was a Brexiteer, and that's why I hope we get out on the 31st of October. Dankeschön, Simon Heffer. Merci bien, mon, mon cher. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.